Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Hear these words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A lot of this morning's sermon is going to be centered around the spiritual habit we call prayer, a wonderful habit. And before we dive into the scripture, I want to just say something, some things about prayer because I think there are misconceptions. I think some people see that prayer is um, just something of an escape from a sturdy life of commitment and action in the world. Uh, Robert Persig in that book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, um, he talked about how many hours, and when he wrote this, he was talking not about the computer, he's talking about the television, that we look at life just sitting there looking at this screen. And he said, looking through the frame, people begin to delude themselves that they are not couch potatoes, but that they are actually doing something. And after a while, we lose our capacity to really do anything. And some people, the critics of prayer have said it's something like that kind of frame. We have turned it into a substitute for Christ-like action. Well, there is a little truth to that. Story about the prosperous farmer. Oh, he had just fields just rich with the gold of heavy wheat and corn. And he had his habit of praying for the family. He was the one always going to offer the prayer at the table. And in the course of his prayers, he would always say something like this, Oh God, please help the poor hungry family. Cannot remember their name, but please help the poor hungry family that lives right down the road. And he would always say that as part of the daily blessing and prayer at the table. Well, one day his teenage son in the middle of the prayer had heard enough of that and pushes his chair back from the table. And the father says, what are you doing? And the boy turns to his father and said, Father, if I had your corn crib, I would answer that prayer for myself. Okay. Now look, all of us probably know such illustrations out of our own scripts. I mean, the times we have prayed so vehemently to, that somehow... Um, we might find a way to bless our children and our education system, that the children would have education that was uh, equal and just. But then we never do anything to support overworked teachers and overextended systems. Yes, prayer could be an escape. But look, the biblical view of prayer at its best 
has always seen the connection between prayer and how we see life and how we aim our life and how we live our lives. J just look at what prayer costs Jesus. Where did his ministry begin? Begin apart, alone, in the wilderness, 40 days, okay, in prayer. Where did it end? He goes headlong into the city of Jerusalem and takes on the apostles of hatred and fear. You see, from wilderness to city, from peace to confrontation. Um, there was this rhythmic principle to Jesus' life. It was like a weaver's shuttle alternating between inreach and outreach, times apart, and times of radical involvement in the world. I can always remember my dad telling the story, heard it several times. It, he had a friend that was a college chaplain. This was the 1960s. And, and this chaplain invited a well-known civil rights leader and worker to the university and the chapel service. This was in the 60s and it was in the South and that created a furor in the press and some of the kind of deep pocketed trustees were not happy about it. And so the president of the college was under a lot of pressure about all this. And he came up to my father's friend, the chaplain, and he said, hey, chaplain, from now on, why don't you just stick to your praying? And you know what the chaplain said? He said, it's my praying that got me into this. Yeah, okay, yeah. Prayer gets us into things. Uh, got Jesus into crucifixion, and Peter into martyrdom, and Paul into prison. Okay. If we ever think that somehow prayer is an escape from a life of committed action in the world, then we have not experienced prayer at its fullest. You be careful when you pray, when you really pray. That's, that's risky business. You know. <laughs> to open ourselves, to open ourselves to God without reservation. We are not the power, and we don't have to be all power, but powerful, but we can be open and receptive to the energy that's been there all along. There's a group of uh, physicists, they're known as field theorists. And, and this, is, this is their theory about the universe. That they say non-material structures, waves of energy, they say, are probably the basic substance of the universe. Non-material waves of energy. Well, we say, oh, yeah, we know about that. The Holy Spirit is forever moving, creating, Recreating, Jesus said, those who believe in me, the, the streams of living water will run through them. I, I love this statement by Anne Lamott. It's kind of an interesting thought. She said, the Gulf Stream can run through a straw if the straw aligns itself with the Gulf Stream. Okay, yeah. Prayer, we align ourselves, we open ourselves to the God energy that has been there all along. In, in prayer, we don't try to conjure God up, you know, trying to ring a bell to get God's attentiveness. We believe that the air is always thick with the presence of God, always here above, around, beneath, before, behind. We don't pray to... Um, inform God or to persuade God or coerce God. We don't believe God needs more information or coercion. We believe the living God has not only made this world, but seeks to bring wholeness into all the creation, into everyone. 
So when we have a good friend who is battling cancer, we pray for that friend. We open ourselves, align ourselves with the healing, creative energies of God. Now, in what way are those prayers answered? That's beyond our prognosticating or controlling. But as Patrick said in introduction to his prayer this morning, I want you to think of it this way. Every time we pray, whatever we pray for, our prayers really are the answer. Because when we pray, we always receive what we really need most intimacy, communion with God. You see, prayer is not just scribbling this little message on a piece of paper and rolling up and sticking it in a bottle, throwing it into the sea, hoping someday it's going to wash up on God's shore. No. The relationship is already there. Prayer is communion. We speak to God and God speaks to us. We pray and in prayer God also touches, embraces, shapes and changes us, and yes, sometimes nods us, nudges us into active involvement in the world. Yeah. Maybe you could think of it this way. God, prayers, the way God has given us to keep ch- chasing our heart after God's own heart. Okay. Maybe it's our way of bothering God so God can just graciously bother us back. Nothing works much better than Now, I'm sorry for that long prologue. Now I'm going to get to the scripture. But see, it it makes sense, that prologue, because this morning's scripture is a prayer. I I can see the writer having written this and then putting a little P.S. By the way, you might want to hold on to these verses. You could use them on Sunday morning in the worship service. You know, they could be a good prayer. This is in the book of Ephesians. Now there's a lot of argument. Who really wrote Ephesians? Some people say somebody other than Paul. Some people still hold on to the idea that it's Paul. For our purposes today, I'm going to say it's Paul because I I know this much, that the style, the theology is Pauline. Oh, everybody does agree that probably this was not written just to one church, the church at Ephesus. It was probably written to a cluster of churches in Asia Minor or Greece, kind of the, the general church it was written to. And here's what we do know about this letter. The controlling thought is that Jesus the Christ is the center of unity. Not just for the church, but for the world, drawing creation together. Look, Paul, Paul the writer, he lived in the same kind of world that we live in, okay? that we see on the TV every day. Uh, humanity um, divided from humanity. Class from class, race from race, nation from nation, ideology from ideology, Jew from Greek. Okay. And, and he was writing to this church that sometimes got out of the center, got out of kilter, and they found themselves in discord and division. And so he prays this prayer for the church. If you believe in timelessness of Scripture, this would be a good prayer for our church, our denomination, when we're trying to have this very challenging conversation with each other. I hope you notice Paul's, his attitude of prayer. He says, on bended knee. You say, well, that's how a lot of, look, in that day, a a, a Jewish person of prayer, and that's how Paul grew up, would have um, prayed standing up, arms outreached with the palms upward. But he is so intense, you see, that we have a picture that his posture is prostrate before God. 
And listen to his prayer. He said, God, I pray that you will grant us the grace and power that we might comprehend the fullness of the love of Christ. And then he goes on and talks about the fullness of that, the um, length of it and the width of it and the height and the depth of it. And then he goes on and says, which surpasses all human knowledge. Is Paul being a little confessional here? Like if it surpasses all human knowledge, um, should we even attempt it? You know, is it like leaning a ladder up against the western sky? How do you measure the immeasurable? You cannot empty the illimitable ocean of God's love with our tiny buckets. And Paul knows that. He knows he's using words of time and space, but he wants to stretch them and push on the boundaries of those words. Look at just a couple of the dimensions. He talks about the length of God's love. We, we limit God's love when we can localize it or we confine it to our brief hour of vision. Here I'm wearing a wristwatch and we have these things called daytimers and calendars and we're imprisoned and chained to this reality called time. But Paul wants us now get above the fence of that, he says. Imagine a love that's timeless, eternal. And, and then he takes us into the dimension of the width of it. It's universal. We, we limit it when we monopolize it or we narrow it down to the province of um, our sectarian vanities. Jesus came along and tried to get people up above the fence of these little local gods who are interested in their tribe and no other tribe. I remember reading the works of Martin Niemöller, famous German pastor, took on Hitler during World War II. He's thrown into prison. And he comes out of prison and he says some interesting things. He said, finally, I got quiet enough and I had enough time to get up above the fence. He said, to get up above the fence and thinking about the love of God. He said, it took me a while, but I finally realized that um, God is not the enemy of my enemies. God is not the enemy of God's enemies. God loves those who love him, and he loves those who fight him. God loves those who believe in him, and God loves, stands lovingly by the death of an atheist who's writing that God does not exist. Okay. Wow. Just the width of that. And then he goes on. We don't have enough time, but he gets into the height and the depth of that. Well, don't you think that would be a good prayer for our church right now? As we speak in St. Louis, Missouri, they're gathering 864 delegates and in the next few days, they're gonna be making some important decisions about the language of our discipline, how we regard ordination in terms of our relationship with the LBGTQ community. Okay. I'm sure we want to pray that, um, that the Spirit of God will be at work there in that room and guiding those that are involved to try to find their way into the fullest and greatest desires that God has for our church in this world right here, right now, in the 21st century. But I think equally important could be that Paul's prayer. You know, that that room, that body of delegates, they might be grounded in, they might be rooted in the fullness of the love of Christ. Now, I don't know exactly how that prayer would lead to 
final decisiveness. A lot of us, I have my hopes, I have my thoughts. But I'm pretty sure of this, that if Paul's prayer becomes the prayer of that body of delegates of our church, it will shape the way they converse with each other, how they hold their conversation in the next few days. It will shape their determination to somehow hold on to our relationships, to be a people who believe that being in the right relationship is as important as being right. Wouldn't that be a good prayer for us right here at Central? I mean, we're, you know, truth of the matter is there may be a decision in three days. There may be no decision. So we're still going to have to find ways to navigate some issues together. Uh, wouldn't it be something that we would be grounded, rooted in the very height, depth, length, and width of the love of God in Christ? Yeah. You see, we... We pray Paul's prayer, and those words flow to God. And then they turn around, and they really flow right back to us, don't they? I mean, and as, as we offer the words, they come back to us teaching the faithful. We overhear those words as a congregation. We pray in the Spirit, and the Spirit teaches us. We reach out to God, and God reaches back to us. And I think what will happen as we pray that prayer, we'll go, oh yes, that's who we are. That's how we are to be in our relationship with each other, grounded in that love, immeasurable, illimitable. Would you be willing to make that your prayer in the next weeks? Would you be willing to think about that prayer and how it might guide your relationship with someone that you might disagree with. Hmm. When I was in another church, uh, there was a woman, everybody would just say, it wasn't just me, everybody that knew her, she's very active. She was a person of just inherent peace. By that I mean, she just felt at peace with her place in the universe. She was at peace with her the stranger. She was at peace with friends, she was people. She, she just, she had a heart of peace. You ever known somebody that has a heart of war? When somebody has a heart of war, when there are disagreements, they see the people they disagree with as objects. They are no longer people, they are obstacles to be overcome. But that wasn't her way. No matter what happened in church, heart of peace. I asked her about that. I got curious and said, where did that come from? She had a ready answer. It kind of surprised me. She said, disciple Bible study. I said, really? She said, yep, 35 weeks of disciple Bible study. She said, oh my goodness, we had this Duke's mixture of people and I'd be sitting in there, we'd be going through a book like Genesis and I'd hear somebody say something and I'd be going, oh my goodness, did they really say that? Are they really thinking that? And, but she said, we had this covenant in disciple Bible study. Not only every week did we pray with each other, but we prayed for each other. We had this list named nine or ten people in the group and every day it was our covenant to pray each person each name and pray for them so she said here i was i i was praying for some of these people well frankly they didn't get their mail out of the same box that i did but i kept praying 
And this is what she said. She said, it didn't really change my mind about certain matters, but it changed my heart. You hear that? It changed my heart. And then this is how she concluded it. She said, after 35 weeks of disciple Bible study and prayer, I came to this conclusion that Jesus doesn't call us to always agree with each other or just to tolerate each other. He does call us to love each other as he loves us, period. Central. May we be a congregation of prayer. Remember, as we pray Paul's prayer, and that would be a good prayer for us, we will certainly receive an answer. I know we'll receive the gift we need most, and that's communion with God. And God will be speaking back to us touching us, embracing us, shaping us, changing us. And I think grounding us in the illimitable, immeasurable love of Christ, the very length, width, depth, and height of that love. Amen.